In this episode of Between the Lines, IDIS Research Fellow Tony Roberts interviews Eve Hayes de Calaf, author of the book Legal Identity, Race and Belonging in the Dominican Republic, From Citizen to Foreigner. With a focus on the Caribbean, this book provides a cautionary tale regarding legal identity practices. It warns that policies encouraging the en masse registration of native-born migrant-descended populations can also force the thorny question of nationality, unsettling long-established identities and entitlements. Eve, welcome to IDS Between the Lines. Thanks for making time to talk to us. I've really enjoyed re reading the book this weekend. Um, it's a really interesting insight into this issue of digital identity, which is becoming increasingly important in every country that we've been looking at. And I think what's exceptional about your book is that it brings through the perspective of the people of marginalized communities who are affected by these changes. We've become used to listening to the narrative from the perspective of the international development community. And here in your book, we heard the voices of those people most directly affected come through really clearly. Um, of course, it's become a specific target of the sustainable de development goals to provide everybody with a birth certificate or other form of legal identity by 2030. And that discourse that legal identity uh, enables the social and financial inclusion of marginalized groups has, has become a dominant narrative. But your book suggests that among some communities in the Dominican Republic, there's an apathy and resentment about the project of legal identity, which is often experienced as a, a burden that delivers dubious benefits to some communities and actually reproduces racial disadvantage and hierarchies of privilege. And so thanks for providing us with that evidence um, and let, giving us a new insight into the issue of biometric digital identity. It provides us, I think, with a, a welcome opportunity to critically re-examine what interests are actually being served by legal identity and who benefits, um, issues that we'll come back to uh, very soon. But first, Eve, can you tell us what it was in your own background that motivated you to focus on the issues in this book in the first place? Um, thank you so much for, for that question. Um, well, initially, uh, I lived in, I, I basically lived in the Dominican Republic and moved there in the mid 2000s. Um, and it was always something that was, I, I, the issue of um, registrations and how people were being treated by the civil registry was always something that was very, um, I, was, I was very interested in, particularly um, in my own journey, because I, I later went on to, uh, I naturalized as a, as a Dominican citizen, so I, I'm now a dual national. Um, and seeing the way that, um, the, the way that bureaucracies can be so cruel, really, uh, to um, certain demographics, the way, the way it, uh, can privilege and um, prioritize other people because of um, either their skin color or their national origin or um, or their, their class and their status. So those kind of interactions that I'd had on quite a regular basis in my own kind of experience, first of all, as being um, a foreigner in the Caribbean and then be, becoming, um, becoming a citizen myself, um, that was kind of yeah something that was really interesting in the book and in parallel 
um, it was seeing that um, the civil registry was becoming modernized. So, you know, where you had um, systems where people were, um, you know, uh, paperwork being piled high to the ceiling and um, uh, people being made to forced to stand in line and it being very uncomfortable. I could see that there was clearly um, investment being made into improving the ways in which people were, civil registries were handling and dealing with people. So there were, um, you know, you, you gradually saw computer systems being implemented. You saw that um, waiting rooms were being air conditioned and, um, you know, made more comfortable. Um, so, so you could see that these changes were happening but I had no idea at the time why they were happening or really where the money was coming from to 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 kind of uh, yeah to, to support that. So that I think was quite interesting. So so why were the changes happening and where was the money coming from? So um, what I do in the book is basically highlight how um, international development organizations such as the United Nations, the Inter-American Development Bank, and particularly the World Bank, um, were basically um, encouraging and providing donor support to the Dominican state um, to ensure that it could roll out en masse registration programs. Um, and I didn't know anything about this when I started doing the research. So this is part of the, it was part of the doctoral project that was looking at um, initially a, 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 um, a court ruling, a constitutional court ruling that took place in um, 2013. Um, and this ruling affected uh, a woman called Juliana Luis Pierre, who was who had been given a Dominican birth certificate, but was then finding it very, very difficult to get a copy of that birth certificate, which she needed to then be provided with a Dominican ID card. Um, and this ruling was extremely important in the region uh, because essentially what happened was the judges um, turned around to Juliana and said, actually, you know, we're not going to give you your Dominican birth certificate and give you access because we don't think that you're a citizen at all. In fact, um, we might have provided you with state issued ID as a citizen, but we're now backtracking. We made a mistake. And we're going to tell people who were born in the country between 19, um, well, fr from 1929, um, that, uh, that they're, they're not citizens, that in fact, that they're, they're Haitians. So this was a very explosive court ruling um, because of its impact on a huge um, uh, number of uh, migrant descended people living in the Dominican Republic, born in the Dominican Republic, who also had some form of um, not everybody, there were many undocumented people, but also documented people who had already been issued with some form of ID confirming that they were Dominicans. So that I found extremely interesting um, and empirically rich context to, uh, to uh, an empirically rich context to look at and to write about. And it was only through then my conversations with, um, with uh, people across different socioeconomic um, uh, backgrounds, people living both on the island and overseas, um, that it that uh, we had had kind of the, the uh, there were answers there that that and repetition in those answers that made me really really want to look at the policy and try and understand why people were saying oh are you like you know that person that, that's 
been to our door and knocked on our door for the past few weeks um, and they asked us these questions and they they wanted to know these things and basically what I was able to do with them the with the research that on the ground research and the interviews that I carried out with people um, was linked this specifically to World Bank policy so um, since the mid 2000s so there was an economic crash in the country um, and this was very much um, an intrinsic part of structural adjustment reforms um, and part of kind of a, a way of tackling corruption it was seen as um, an important way the need to track and trace income poor people um, and the logic behind this being that if we know who our people who poor um, populations are if we know where li we're li they're living and if they have some form of id then then logically then that will help facilitate their access to it will unlock rights it will help us collate our vital statistics um, uh, and data on 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 these groups and it can only be a positive thing um, and what I show in the book really is that this actually <laughs> um, had um, some quite um, uh, some quite overwhelmingly difficult um, uh, problems for migrant descended people so principally for people born to Haitian migrants who were at one point um, either issued with some form of state ID um, or essentially thought they were citizens um, only to find that the state changed its mind. So for people who are not familiar with the Dominican Republic can you tell us a bit about the position of Haitian migrants and their access to legal identification okay thank you for this question the um the dominican republic shares an island with its neighbor haiti um and um what i wanted to make really uh, clear in the book was that um that scholarship that looks at um the experiences for example of haitian migrants living in the dominican republic um very much focus uh their energies on looking at um, uh, children who are who are born to uh, so children who are born to to Haitians um, but I wanted to do something different with the book because I was concerned um, and this is um, what uh, the scholar Torres Sajant talks about the permanent foreignness of Haitian descended um, people um, living in the Dominican Republic. So I was very interested in people who might have been born in the country, who grew up in the country, and even had um, some form of legal identification to, to, that, that confirmed they were Dominican citizens, who then retroactively and arbitrarily found that the state was backtracking. So saying that we might have given you this um, ID, but actually we now need to rectify an error within our civil registry, um, and because we're, you know, because we're cleaning up our our civil um, registry, our bureaucracy, um, there were people who got caught up within that system who were treated very, um, uh, who who had a very uh, perverse experiences really of of of. Uh, that affected their, their own sense of um, identity and belonging. So the crux here is that the, the issue has very much been talked about and understood via um, an immigration lens. So either looking at the um, looking at the island and understanding the relationship between um, the Dominican Republic and its Haitian neighbor, or looking at the experiences of children born to Haitian migrants. Now, what I wanted to do is say that these, um, that, that framing 
um, while useful in some contexts, can be quite, quite can be very problematic when we're looking at the issue of legal identity. Why? Because you have people who, for um, gener uh, who for for many years, sometimes over several generations, when um, were only born and grew grown up and raised in the Dominican Republic. Um, so there's a tension there between how people are being, um, how people self-identify, and then how the state uh, the state sees them. Um, and that's something that I wanted to highlight in the, in the book. So, so let me ask you about the, the digital ID. Uh, again, for people who don't know anything about the Dominican Republic, why is it significant? What does that digital ID enable you or prevent you from having access to? Well, the D Dominican state has um, centralized basically the use of its cédula, so its national ID card. Um, as a means to um, facilitate access to um, a whole host of different um, state uh, services and also uh, in the private sector. So, and this is typical of actually many countries. So in order to um, open a bank account or to vote in the national elections or to um, uh, have access to remittances from overseas um, or to get married for a whole host of reasons and people need to show their, their cellular. Um, and the, the Dominican context here is very important because of the association of the national identity card with the dictatorship. So um, from 1930 till, till 1961, Rafael um, Trujillo, he first introduced the, uh, the ID card um, and he also used um, racial classifications on the ID card as a means to, to identify um, people and know uh, know or, or claim to know what their what their racial uh, classification was according to how the state saw them and how the state defined them. So this already for me when I started learning more about le legal identity specifically and then um, the focus within the sustainable development goals to ensure that everybody has some form of, um, of legal existence, I was very worried about the fact that that could also facilitate and, and uh, basically give states tools to enhance the way that they're recording um, and keeping tabs on people based on their, uh, their ethnic and national origins. Um, and I think because of the, um, the complex history that the Dominican Republic has with its Haitian neighbor, um, and also the, the position that, that the Dominican Republic has always played in terms of how, how race has always been used as this kind of political play and for socio um, and economic gain as well. Um, it's um, in, in how it positions itself kind of within this, within the global context. Um, it, it's just a fascinating case study, I think, and something that really merited being, being looked at in more depth in, in the book. You know, I, I found it fascinating and you you provide kind of rich insight to the, the lives of people who are directly affected by it. And, and I think one of the things that distinguishes the book is that whereas we're told from, you know, in development discourse, we're told that legal identity benefits the most marginalized and poorest people, it allows them to get access to, as you were just saying, to work, to travel, to welfare, to education. Um, in your book, it, it was clear that in the case of the Dominican Republic, the demand for legal identity 
didn't come from marginalized people. And even the government of the Dominican Republic was initially reluctant to get involved in that space. So can you tell us about, you know, where that demand comes from um, and what lies behind it? Uh, it's such a fantastic question. I'm actually um, carrying out a research project at the moment, trying to understand more about the origins of legal identity and why it became such a huge priority um, within the global development agenda. It's seen as a cross-cutting theme. So the idea being that, um, and it's also seen as a very benign um, uh, goal. So the idea that if you give people their ID, suddenly, as, as you very rightly say, it will unlock their access to a whole um, number of uh, different opportunities and, and services and um, um, and experiences, but really um, equally as much as that can unlock um, an ID card can unlock um, access, it can equally block access. Um, and the it's very clear that this has there has been just um, an acceptance within the development sector that. Um, ID is a solution, that it will solve everybody's problems because we need to track and trace everybody, we need to know who everybody is and where they are because only once you can identify the income pool, once you know where people are and under what conditions they're living, then that logically means that you can ease, more easily collate data and facilitate um, access to all sorts of kind of state assistance or aid assistance um, and welfare. And where I looked at in the, uh, for what I looked at with regards to legal identity in the Dominican case was looking at the rollout of these welfare systems. So the justification for um, this, the en masse registration of Dominicans was the World Bank said, listen, you need to improve um, the way that you are dispersing payments to the poor. Um, you have a bottleneck in the sector. Um, there are problems because money is basically disappearing. We want to know that our investment, that our money is being spent well, is going to the right people um, and is, um, and is, is uh, trace, we can trace those payments. Um, but the issue being that that was very, then the, the disbursement of payments were linked very closely then to this concept of legal identity. So not only give people money, but ensure that they have a card, a unique card with which um, they can uh, then go to the local shop, for example, and, and get whatever um, produce that they want to buy. Uh, what was underpinning the logic of this whole infrastructure was the fact that people need to have an ID card to be able to do this. Um, and it became increasingly obvious to me while I was researching it that, um, yeah, that the, it was how the Dominican state was identifying its citizens, who it was willing to accept as Dominicans and who it was resisting, who, who it wanted to um, not recognise as citizens was at the crux, basically, of the whole problem that um, around legal identity. So it, it's not just the fact that people were having a getting a legal identity, but saying, well, what legal identity? Who, who is it for um, and why? And, and what came through very clearly. So, you know, this is a, a human process where people are told that we're going to give you your legal identity, it's going to unlock all of these services for you, come and get your legal identity. Um, but as part of those that mass 
mass drive for identification, in fact, the real criteria was the color of your skin. So people were being turned away. Um, and, and there's some incredible quotes in your book because they don't, because they look Haitian or because their their surname sounds foreign. Um, so, so tell us a bit more about um, who was at being able successfully to access ID and the, and the benefits that came with it and, and who was being systematically discriminated against. Yeah, well, I think what I tried to do with the book was highlight as well the, the messiness of, um, of these systems. So I think where sometimes there are limitations in terms of how people understand what's happened with the, with the Dominican case um, is, um, is assuming that, that certain people have been treated the same way and have the same experiences. And I tried to show that actually people experience, um, so Kate, uh, there's a sociologist Katie Tonkis talks about this, but um, people experience um, ID systems in all sorts of heterogeneous ways. And sometimes they're contradictory and sometimes they're, um, they're complex. So one example I would give are the, the case of the three brothers. Um, and there's one brother who um, had a, a really difficult time. So he was a bouncer. He used to be paid cash in hand. Um, and he said that he was getting very frustrated and angry because he was being incarcerated. So the police would stop him, ask for his ID. And if he couldn't show his ID, he'd be put in jail. And then he he recounted this story, this awful story about how he had to, how he was forced to cut off his Afro hair, something that he very much saw as part of his identity and who he was, um, so that he could get his photo taken for an ID card. Now this was a this the three brothers were born to Haitian parents, and this guy was he went through all of these. Um, experiences but in the end he was able to get his his Dominican ID card um, but, but then when you compare and contrast that to the the other two brothers the second brother who was um, a baseball player who was scouted by an American um, by a US uh, a baseball coach who very quickly because of the contacts and connections and kind of the importance of, of what he represented for for this um, American meant that he was able to get his ID card and passport and actually go off to the States and, and, and train as a, a baseball player. Whereas the third brother, again, born in the same place to the same parents, um, couldn't get his ID card at all. In fact, he was told, the mayor of the town told him he was, he was a Haitian, that he couldn't help him. And that the only way he could get his, his legal ID was to register as a Haitian. So there you have an example of um, three brothers who've grown up in very similar contexts yet have had these overwhelmingly different experiences um, in their interactions with the civil registry. So that was part of what I wanted to achieve with the book, was show that it's, uh, I don't think, um, of course, um, Haitian descended people were the ones who were overwhelmingly affected by these decisions and who encountered the most obstacles and uh, dis um, discrimination. That, that There's no question of that. But it was also to try and kind of um, try and kind of see these nuances as well in terms of when people um, because of either their their class or social status or, or national origin and all these different things that 
that kind of when they combine um, can lead to a myriad of experiences of people. And I did this specifically in, in kind of, uh, yeah, specifically to, to respond to then um, the assumptions of uh, the international development sector to say, you know, idea is not this, um, this somehow seen as this kind of a, not just a solution, but it leads to a lot of problems for people as well. And yes, they can overcome those problems or yes, they might, um, uh, they might experience these problems in different ways, but we need to start acknowledging that there are issues um, with STG goal 16.9. And we need to start having a serious conversation around whether this is actually contravening, you know, the do no harm principle of um, within kind of international development. Our, uh, is ID actually harming those same populations that it, it's supposed to be helping? I also wanted to ask you a bit about the, the, the power holders, the players driving this process. Um, I found it really interesting that you, you said that um, apart from the international development agencies driving the process um, and the states implementing the process, that banks were very important and, and Visa, the credit card company was important. Can you tell us a bit more about how those uh, players took on different roles? Yeah, so Visa International was incredibly uh, instrumental in this because the um, the welfare card, the Tarjeta uh, Solidaridad, was being um, was basically sponsored by Visa. So, um, and you know that people who write on on the welfare state um, and look at it, even even from a UK perspective, have have noted, you know, the interest of. Um, when we talk about financial inclusion, for example, and the, the interest of, 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 of big banks um, and, uh, you know, monetary lenders, etc., in in the welfare state. And I think that the, it was really, really interesting then because it underpins neoliberal neo logics, really, which say, um, you know, in order to get a credit card or in order to be a consumer, you must have some form of legal existence. Um, so we can see then that the, the logic behind why these systems were implemented, how they were formed and why they were rolled out um, is, is really crucial. Um, but at the same time, they are very problematic for people if the state doesn't want to recognize these people as belonging to the body politic. Um, so yeah, I did highlight the role of Visa International and the role of national banks as well, Dominican banks in, um, in supporting the um, en masse registration of people. Um, but also I wanted to acknowledge the role of, the, of big tech as well. Um, and this is something that I think people in the international development sector, when they're having conversations around um, identity and um, uh, legal ID and digital ID um, specifically, the, the, the data, uh, the people who are the guardians of the data, you know, remember that data doesn't know borders. <laughs> it doesn't know, you know, we might have our citizenship data and it might be stored in, in um, on the other side of the world. Um, and big tech companies, are huge part of this jigsaw puzzle yet are not at the table because I think they see their role as being um, very much a pragmatic role um, but they're not integrating they're not thinking about the impact of uh, big data and and these type of policies on 
um, individual experiences. Um, so I think that it's hugely important that the banking sector, big tech, um, the financial industry and others who all have an interest in knowing who people are um, and, and in ensuring that people have the correct form of ID um, need to need to have a um, yeah to sit at the table and talk about some of the problems with this. But who is benefiting from this process of uh, civic registry and, and who is uh, being disadvantaged? Thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, I what how I try and understand this um, within the within the research and how I carried the research out was talking about the interconnectedness of ID systems. And I think that's that's the crucial word there, because the SDG goal 169 is based, as you as you correctly said, um, around uh, birth registration. So the whole discourse around social protection, social inclusion, um, and yes, within social policy, etc., has been talking about the need to register children, and it makes sense, and it also makes for a very nice uh, campaign, right, for UNICEF or for Plan International or for whoever um, gets involved in these campaigns. Who could be against it? Who could be against these? Yeah, I mean, I mean but they're great. I mean, they're great. I would, I mean, recommend you, you reading the, um, uh, reading some of these reports. But what's underpinning that, what's behind that is that once you, you know, start overhauling civil registries, when we've got, as I, I call it, this, this, this shift from paper ID to digital ID, which I call, you know, an underappreciated revolution in the book, because it really is. Um, it is a huge fundamental monumental change to the ways in which we are, we are organising, you know, uh, uh, the ways in which governance functions, we're organising our citizenry or reorganising our citizens, as I, as I say in the book. Um, and we need to understand that ID systems are uh, don't aren't just beneficial at the point of, um, you know, when a child's born and the intervention of the state, for example, if the state comes and ensures the child has their birth certificate and their digital this legal ID number, then that means that the knock-on effects would be that the mother hasn't given birth at home. It means that the state can then intervene and encourage a mother to breastfeed, it can encourage a mother to vaccinate her child. So there's a logic there and it, it does make, it makes a lot of sense. Um, but at the same time, you know, while we're, we, while we're encouraging children to register, well, their parents or grandparents or even great-grandparents might not have registered or might not have had um may have had one form of paper id but not um in the dominican case people are expected to have a, a birth certificate and an id card enabled to get uh, in order to get a passport for example um so there's there, there are different layers of of privilege and access then um that are put in place that can really block and impede a person's access um to certain forms of state recognition um, so, and that's why the interconnected thing, I think that's why I talk about, I talk about not just the elderly, so people who've maybe, well, maybe have said for the past 50 years they've been married to their partner and then find out actually, you know, they're not really married because they don't have any form of um, documentation that proves their, their status and this can have a huge impact, you know, on in terms of people's access to a pension, people's access to, to benefits. Um, and I also talk, mentioned in the book very slightly about, uh, you know, what happens with, with people when they die? <laughs> what happens with dead people? Um, so, you know, while I, I think uh, the, the SDGs are very 
um, and hugely ambitious in scale. I mean, we're talking about um, up to or over a billion people to be given some form of legal existence. And it honestly still astounds me, absolutely astounds me that we haven't, uh, or that the, 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 the debate within the international development sector has not caught up with this at all. So as you, as you rightly noted, it's highly um, normative. Um, it's very much from a legalistic standpoint um, and it's very top down. So, you know, there needs to be more engagement with grassroots organizations, with people um, experience, with people and ask them about their experiences of ID systems, because certainly from the from the responses that I got within the book was that people were tired, they were weary, they were fed up, and they didn't see the point <laughs> really of why this had to happen to them. They did, they saw it as a big nuisance, really. Yeah. I just I had a, a question about SIM cards. I'm sure I read in the book that you, in the Dominican Republic, you can't get a mobile phone SIM card unless you have identity. Is that correct? Well, again, I think it just depends. It all falls back to this concept of negotiation that we were talking about. Um, and I think it's more the fact that the, the more robust and the better we get at um, knowing who people are and what their the, what their movements are within the within the market, yeah, the the less room there will be to negotiate um, yeah. people's inter people's interactions. So the idea of a cashless society, I think, which is a very important and, and um, uh, theme that is is coming up um, quite a lot. Um, is the idea that you know well you you used to you know if you worked in the informal economy then you could get cash in hand uh, you could go off to your neighbour you could barter maybe not just with money with with favours or with with whatever but then there was a way around the system and my fear is that the system is becoming so is is becoming so much better at, at kind of pushing us into this one way of negotiating with each other one way of um, of of uh of purchasing one way of um interacting that 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 there is no room yeah. um, for there's no wriggle room basically I, well i think you're making a really important point that when we digitalize systems we're making them digital digital means a one or a zero a binary exactly. system and you either have to be in this category or that category there's no um fluidity or room for negotiation and that's not the way the, the real world is. So, so we're dehumanizing processes. We're trying to take human discretion out of the system and replace it with a, a digital binary system. And that's and Tony, not progress. That's an excellent point because then when you apply that same logic to identity formation. So if you think about the way, for example, if you think, for example, that race is a social construct, right? It's something that is essentially um, it's a way of organizing people and putting people into groups. Um, and that is when you when you apply kind of the logic of biometrics um, and of digital ID to people and um, how they view themselves. This is really problematic because we know that identity is fluid, that it's shape shifting, that it can uh, be interpreted in different ways across different, um, you know, depending on our interactions with people on our, you know, say within different socio-historical contexts. Um, so by by effectively reordering people and saying you fit in this box and you fit in that box and there's no way, there's no leeway in between, 
Um, I, I'm very, very concerned about that. I'm very concerned that we're becoming so rigid within within our treatment of people. And I think you were very clear there that, um, yeah, it dehumanizes people. It takes the human element away from any type of interaction. So um, I would, I mean, the film, for example, you know, I, Daniel Blake is a great film that shows um, just how cruel bureaucracies can be to, to people. If you don't fit within the box the way that you're supposed to, if you don't, um, if you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not, uh kind of in within a computer system or you don't exist to that system then then your experiences can be really really awful <laughs> um and that that's kind of what i was trying to bring out in the book is that you know we need to have a much uh uh, more serious debate within the not just within the international development sector but further afield of the fact that there are problems with IDs we are seeing them happening around the world as well so there's some great research that's taking place for example in uh, in Kenya in uh, the Ivory Coast there's great research being done on the Rohingya um, there's, you know, the, these problems, are, um, in, uh, especially like with what's happening with uh, in India as well, there's huge issues with ID systems. Um, but what I was trying to achieve with the book was connect them together to say this is part of global policy. This is a global aim. This is something that's being supported by, you know, the banking sector, by states, by um, the international development sector um, and by big tech. And we have a problem. Yep. So let's talk about it. So, so building on that, and, and maybe at this point we can start looking forward, um, your book does a great job of identifying and problematizing this process of legal identity. What needs to be done? What needs to change? What do development agencies and other actors need to do now? I've been asked this question before, um, and my response will remain the same, is that you need to engage with people and um, stop assuming that people um, experience, uh, yeah, stop assuming what people's experiences are and go and ask them and integrate that within your policy. Um, and that, that's the only, you know, don't, don't um, just uh, look at the, it, it's problematic because if you integrate, you know, state-led responses, but you know that you're dealing with a state that um, that is, uh, arbitrarily expulsing some some citizens doesn't want to recognize some people as citizens um, then clearly that interaction is not going to work is it and you need to look um, at different ways to engage with people who are experiencing um, experiencing registrations and not just assume that registrations will be the be all and end all and i don't have the answer <laughs> that's part of the problem i think people turn around and say what what are you saying we shouldn't id anybody and, and um, <laughs> i'm not saying that whatsoever of course we need id we're seeing that you know within the with uh, the covid pandemic as well um the the issue of ideas is just so fraught isn't it and so um contentious and so um it, it, it's uh, such a tense kind of time that we're living in, I think, over the question of ID. I'm not saying get rid of all IDs, but I'm also saying, you know, if if an ID is not facilitating access, if it's not, um, uh, if it's making someone's life more difficult than, than, than it was previously, then is ID really the solution that we all want to strive for here? Yeah. 
Yeah, you can imagine in a, in a benign state with the right people in positions of power, you could have a digital ID system that served the interests of everybody in the country. The challenge that comes through in your book about the situation in the Dominican Republic is that if you have a, a state who wants to use that as an opportunity to advantage one section of the population uh, over and above another, um, digital identity can also be a mechanism for doing exactly that. Um, so we're running out of time. I just wanted to, to look a bit towards the horizon and ask you uh, what's changed since you started writing the book and what, what, what direction your research has taken now? What are you working on now um, moving forward? Thank you so much. Well, um, as, I, as I state right at the start of the book, the book really is a, it offers a, it's a cautionary tale. Um, so, and that's, that was always my, my motivation with, with getting this published was to say, listen, this is, um, I'm, I'm just giving you one snippet into what has happened in, uh, in the Dominican context. Clearly there are other contexts and we haven't even uh, mentioned Windrush today, which is um, a hugely important one that will be of interest to many IDS and listeners as well. Um, so I've, I've, I've achieved that aim of saying this is a case study, this is an issue, um, and I'm kind of putting it out there. Um, and where I want to go with this and where I'm trying to um, trying to kind of move, move the research forward is really to understand what's happening um, across the across the Americas region. So earlier this year, um, well, should cut that out. <laughs> so last year, I organised a conference entitled "Reimagining uh, uh, Belonging in Latin America and Beyond" um, at the Centre for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at the um, Institute of Modern Languages Research, University of London. And part of that conference was really to bring America, bring the Americas into um, the global conversation that has already started. So um, I'm sure that many of your listeners will be aware of. Um, of, uh, pa of parallels or par um, of uh, similar contexts, no, of, of examples that are happening across Africa, Southeast Asia, also also in Europe and other areas. And my concern was the Americas is so important um, and I want to understand what's happening more. So my research has been looking at, for, for example, at that, at that conference we had um, lawyers who were from a legal clinic in, in Peru who've been working with non-binary people and I think that's very fascinating to think about. Um, think about people whose who's, uh, context, for example, um, indigenous people, um, Afro-descended people um, and others who might not always fit comfortably within how a state um, these kind of normative um, definitions of, of who these people are and how their identity plays out. Um, I'm very much interested in learning more about those cases, about where they are, about how people are experiencing them, and also learning from the the positive stories as well. Seeing where that you know where ID has, as as um, international organisations are claiming. Um, where it has actually really helped people because then we can also use those as as, as examples of of good practice but again as i've said and i'll repeat it is we need to recognize where the where the problems are as well so yeah that's where i'm basically broadening out the findings of what um uh, uh, and kind of the methodology that i implemented in the dominican case and i'm looking kind of to further afield um within the americas to try and work out 
um, yeah, where to, what what else is happening in the region and, and what else we can do about it. Great. Eva, I imagine part of the challenge of writing a book is deciding what to leave out, what, what didn't make it into your book. That's such a great question, Tony. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's such a, I, it's such a dense case. The Dominican cases, um, you know, there was an inter-American court ruling in 2005. There were a um, huge amount of wranglings in terms of like administrative changes, constitutional reforms. Um, there were, there was um, changes to the migration law, among others. Um, and not that I don't mention these, of course I mention them and say, and say they're important and, and link them to the bigger questions. But really, um, I think what was interesting was trying to, trying to highlight what the motivations of the Dominican state were. And the whole point of, you know, of introducing these mechanisms and these changes were to ensure that, the, that, that Haitian descended people would not ever be recognized as citizens. Um, and that was the point that I clung on to throughout the book. And that's why the book is called From, From Citizen to Foreigner, um, because it's the idea that, you know, what, however, you know, Kafka-esque you want to make your, um, your civil registry, whatever kind of complex bureaucratic changes you want to implement, whatever the law and the, uh, you know, or whatever legal findings that, 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 that happen, essentially all of this was there because it, because the state did not want to acknowledge that children born to, to Haitian migrants could were, were Dominicans. Um, so that, I mention it, I, I talk through people, I guide people through it a little bit, but honestly, it was so so dense and complex, it felt like wading through treacle sometimes. And also I didn't want to make, I didn't want to make the book um, a, a guide to, um, a guide to despots really. <laughs> I didn't want to um, really show people how they were doing it. Um, it, to, 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 to focus on that. It was more about the lived experiences of people of ID systems. It was the contradictions and the contestations that emerged from ID systems. And it was also the voices, amplifying the voices of people um, of saying, you know, what is working for them and what isn't and what lessons we can take from that. Great, well, you, you did a really great job. I, I really hope that listeners will enjoy reading the book as, as much as I did. And, you know, for someone who's, who studies uh, digital development, it is a very clear example of how a technical system is always a political system. And you always have to go back to that underpinning to really understand why it works or doesn't work. Dr. Eve Hayes, thank you so much for taking time to speak to us on Between the Lines. Thank you so much, Tony. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and share to help us spread the word. Do you have a great book we could feature in a future episode? Then get in touch on email at betweenthelines at ids.ac.uk. Between the lines.